Welcome to Navigating Education, the podcast. The podcast that can help educators from around the world navigate not only the present, but also the future. Through discussions of instruction, ed tech, policy, and school leadership, we're here to connect with you and educators from around the world to help them amplify student learning for the betterment of our students and their future. All righty, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Navigating Education, a podcast, episode number 47. And I'm here with Dr. Rebecca Rowland, and we're going to be talking about the art of talking with children. And what's really fantastic about this topic is is that in the times that we're in, um, I think children, as well as just any student or human being that you're working with, needs to have the opportunity to have a good conversation and being able to listen as well as, you know, build that toolbox of uh, strategies to really help uh, support them in being heard and acknowledged as well as building those emotional intelligence and communication skills. So Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Yes, thanks for having me. So I am really fascinated by your work. You're a speech pathologist, you're a, a lecturer at Harvard University, and you wrote this book. And before we jump into talking a little bit more about you, the book is about, is that about your study, your dissertation work, or was it something that just manifested after the fact? Yeah, it actually started from my dissertation. Um, in my dissertation, I was studying classroom climate. So really meaning the ways that teachers and students were interacting and how much that could impact their learning. So that's how it started. Um, and then when I became a parent, I realized oh, this is so applicable to relationships in all contexts with children. So I really started out as a researcher and moved from my work as a speech pathologist and a parent too. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's great. So it just manifested over time and everything just kind of came together. And that's kind of generally, I feel like how, how life goes. And, exactly. and speaking about uh, talking about yourself, what's your background in education and how did you get to where you are now? Yeah, so I'm a speech pathologist by training, and my work has really always been about linking oral language and literacy. So I studied a lot, not just talking and listening, but how that links to reading and writing. Um, so I did that for a while, and then I realized I just didn't feel like I knew enough about um, how to help students with my background. So I thought, oh, I really want to do a research doctorate um, to try to figure out, well, what does the research say about all of these things? So. I started to do that. Um, and then I began as a clinician working at Children's Hospital Boston, which was really fascinating because it was an interdisciplinary, um, it was an interdisciplinary um, clinic. Sorry, one second. Um, uh, yeah, it was an interdisciplinary clinic that I was working with psychologists, neuropsychologists, and so on. Um, and so um, that was something that I really enjoyed doing. And um, yeah, that kind of brought me to where I am today. No, that's, that's, that's great. And just, uh, it, it mean, your experiences, I think have definitely, you know, you, you've made that impact, you, you do it on a day to day basis. And now you're in the position now where you want to take that local impact and make it into a, a, a global impact and use those experiences as a guide. So as we jump into learning more about what you're doing, tell us a little bit about what are some specific strategies in our current world? that, you know, families and educators can do to work with children and communicate with them as 
I think children are yearning or and students, I think human beings in general are yearning for to be heard and to communicate. And I think over the last number of years, even before the pandemic, I feel like social skills, emotional intelligence has been something that um, there has been a lack of that within our education system. And I think that just in general with the advent of technology and phones, iPads, et cetera, some of those things have been lost. So talk a little bit about, um, you know, some specific strategies um, to, you know, learn how to communicate better. <laughs> yes, definitely. And I totally agree with you. I think that so many children, especially now, I mean, the pandemic, yes. And even, you know, recent events, there's so many kids that are really hungering to connect with others, to reflect on what's happened to them, to process experiences and so on. And so I think it's so important now more than ever that we actually take the time to sit with kids and really have these kind of more meaningful conversations. Um, and especially there's sort of lots of talk about, you know, mental health crises with children and so on. But we don't always think about well, what are the kind of micro level strategies we can do on a daily basis to support their mental health kind of every day, you know, their understanding every day. And I would say it really starts with taking a cue from the child. So um, in my book, I talk about the ABCs of what I call rich talk. So meaning that I kind of try to break it down um, into three components. Um, and by starting with that foundation, I really think you can have these conversations that feel good in the moment, but also do build children's skills over time. No, definitely. And can you give me an example of what would be like one of the foundational strategies that anyone could, you know, put in their back pocket yeah. and, and do it uh, now? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so I could just quickly tell you what the ABCs are, because I think that would be really that would be helpful. And I can give you an example. So A stands for adaptive, meaning that you're adapting in the moment um, to, you know, what you notice a child is, you know, their mood, their temperament, and so on. And you're also adapting over time. So one example would be, you know, if your child is or a child in the classroom comes in, and they're always very, very silent. You know, you try to take note. Is, has that changed? Um, do you want to probe? Do you want to just wait for a moment and then actually, you know, ask them later after class? You actually are adapting in that moment, but also over time. So, so many parents, for example, say, you know, when my child becomes, you know, 11 or 12, they don't want to sit at dinner and tell me all about their day. You know, but maybe if they're doing an activity with you, you start realizing, oh, I'm playing basketball. So you actually notice, well, what are the times when my child wants to open up to me? And you start to capitalize on those um, rather than trying to push at a time when, you know, the child doesn't seem engaged. Um, so really starting there. B is for back and forth. So I often think about not talking at kids, um, but really talking with them. So meaning that you can really just, you know, anytime, you know, even now, you can sit with a child and just actually notice how much is the child talking? How much are you talking? And try to find the balance there. So maybe you find you aren't a very talkative person and the child is kind of constantly trying to get something out of you. Well, maybe you would want to amp up your talk. Or maybe, you know, it's the opposite and you find you're kind of lecturing often. So maybe you want to tone that part down. So it's all about finding that right balance and kind of what's allowing the child to have their equal say as well. Um, yeah. No, I, I really, I mean, to me, that just sounds like, I mean, common sense communication and being able to probe and mm -hmm. active listening. And I like the notion of balance in terms of 
talk between each of the parties because I think in education and then in general, I think adults tend to want to talk more than the child initially in, in, a, in, a, in an educational setting. And I think also when they are at home and when they're talking about something that maybe needs to be done or trying to provide an explanation, mm-hmm. um, adults tend to talk more. Right. And we want to, I think, in terms of the strategies that you just have provided, I think active listening is something that is really something that adults and and they need to teach children that as well because I think that in terms of that dialogue um without active listening it's it it, you know there's no dialogue at that point it's just one person talking over the other so um definitely you know love that you're talking about those things so and we're talking about communication and there's been much talk and implementation of social emotional learning, trying to build communication, emotional intelligence, um, all those facets in our schools and classrooms. And I feel like that historically, there has been bits and pieces of this or people have been partitioning things within their lessons. um, And now there's a big push to implement this types of curriculum. So how does this correspond with the work that you've been doing with children? Definitely. So yeah, I think it's very fundamental. I would say, yeah, social emotional learning is key for kids. Um, But one thing I've noticed, especially in my work and my research, is that we often really do compartmentalize it. So you think about kind of, well, the social emotional program, or, you know, let's have our social emotional time. And even kids I meet say, you know, oh, we did our social emotional learning, or we did our mindfulness moment, or we did whatever. Um, And then we go about our day, you know, so And teachers, for their part, can feel rightfully that, okay, well, is this taking away from learning because we're doing this like social emotional thing outside of learning? And so what I would argue is that social emotional learning is key, but there's ways to do it that's graded in with the learning. So it doesn't have to be in its own box somewhere out there, but it can be what happens all day throughout the day um, if you're intentional about it. So just as an example, you know, you're reading a short story with children or you're reading a chapter book, you know, you can start to talk about, you know, the emotional experiences of the characters, you know, start to ask questions about, well, how would you feel about that? Well, let's step into their shoes, you know, start to empathize. And this is really doing, you know, literacy work, but it's also doing social emotional work. So you kind of do those things together and they help each other rather than feeling as if, you know, they're competing or we don't have time or something like that. Yeah. And I, I think just when you're teaching really, um, I think that empathy and I think that the ability to, you know, have that feeling function to talk about that feeling function within the context of what students are learning is, is really important than separating. And I've been guilty in my classrooms of, of separating some parts of social emotional learning with uh, before going into maybe the main course of the lesson. Um, but I think that if you can integrate it throughout each and every part of the lesson, it's, it, it's, it's huge. And I like how you talked about, you know, talking about the why of someone's feelings. How do you, how would you feel this way? Or why would you feel this way? How could you put yourself in the character's shoes? Um, I think that that's really huge. And to be honest, I think that those are just additional prompts that teachers can add throughout their lesson. And I really, I really like, I like that idea. And 
I think it's just something that we need to implement across the board. So I know that you talked about the ABCs, which is, I think, the foundation of Rich Talk, right? But can you further talk about, you know, more about this? I really want you to take a more of a deep dive in this. And like, how does this improve our communications and relationships overall with students? Yes. So the idea here is really that Rich Talk is sort of the jumpstart to meaningful and intentional conversations. So we're actually taking this adaptive, you know, components and back and forth and the child driven. And we're really using this to become responsive as educators, as parents and so on. So really it's all about, you know, sitting with children in this kind of what I call embodied face-to-face communication. So meaning that you are with a child in person without necessarily mediating devices and so on you're able to notice those moment to moment um, interactions. You're able to actually notice the silences. You're able to, you know, give more wait time and really be able to do that. Honestly, is easier to do when you're in person with a group of children than when you're on Zoom with them. So Zoom is obviously can be really helpful in our current environment if it needs to happen. But really the ideal here is that you are face-to-face engaged with the senses and able to create these kind of bonds through this back and forth dialogue where you are noticing and responding to cues. Um, and also just using language strategies. So for example, expanding on what children are saying, you're actually you know, helping them stretch what they're saying, you're exploring what they're, you know, goes beyond the here and now. So you're actually exploring things in history, making predictions and so on. Um, and then you're helping them evaluate. So actually, taking note of their thought processes. Um, And we know that, you know, we can help children think about their thinking uh, much earlier than we used to think. So doing metacognition. Um, And this is a really key part of Rich Talk as well to help children become self-aware by actually thinking about how well their thought processes are working or helping them and so on. Do you feel like the facilitate rich talk in a, in a, in a, in a classroom setting or clinical setting, do you like to use like placemats or that type of thing with students of with those types of, you know, sentence frames to start off, or you provide like a, maybe a comic book, social story mm-hmm. or, or that type of um, mechanism to deploy it? Yeah. I mean, I've definitely done those kind of things. And I think that can be helpful, especially when you're getting started, um, especially sentence starters or scaffolds. Um, sometimes, we don't always know kind of, well, what should this look like? Or, you know, um, to have students say, well, let's evaluate. Okay, what does it mean to evaluate? Say, you know, I used to think X and now I think Y. Or, you know, my beliefs changed in this way, but they didn't change in that way. Um, Or I agree with this part of what you're saying, but I disagree with this part of what you're saying. You know, so helping students also, I think it's so key to sort of develop the nuanced understanding. So not to say, oh, I just disagree with you. You're all wrong, you know, but like, okay, well, what part do I agree with you? You know, do I agree with your overall goal and so on? So I think having these kind of sentence starters um, can really help. Yeah, I I think so too. And one thing I feel that where we need to improve is with our students to have them articulate, like you mentioned, just like saying like, I disagree and moving on from like, I disagree to I disagree because X, Y, Z, and I can, you know, provide those reasons, or I feel this way, because and they're able to articulate that. And I've worked with students, you know, very neurodiverse students, um, you know, from the autism spectrum to students with um, 
you know, SLD, OHI, and all these other various elements that they are, you know, working through. And I think that just the biggest thing is, is that we're really struggling with giving them that those opportunities in their classrooms to really focus on that articulation piece. I think that um, there's a lot of curriculum that people want us to get through. And I think just giving time for just working on pure communication and human to human uh, interaction is um, something that I just think that needs to be um, really incorporated within our schools and, and within our homes, because I think it's just been so inundated by so many other distractions where mm -hmm. it's just that there's just not an opportunity. And I think that people uh, in education, um, just when I mention like social stories or when I mention like these types of placemats um, or even it could be even digital like graphic mm -hmm. organizers yeah. that are comic book based. Um, it's, I don't see it all the time. And it's um, something that I feel like that we really need to work on as a whole in, in education. And then I think parents um, and families uh, can take, you know, classes or have resources available to them. I think they're probably out there. It's mm -hmm. just that, they're not being accessed or the times that they're given. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I, I do think also just that if we can be a little creative, there's ways of doing exactly what you're saying within the curriculum too. So, you know, even to have these kind of social stories linked to whatever they're reading or linked to the content or something like that. So you could say, Oh, well, what, what hypothesis do you have? How is it different from my hypothesis? You know, that kind of thing. So you can actually, if you do a little bit of moving around, you can actually make this into even a science lesson or a social studies lesson. It doesn't have to be kind of, you know, only separate, although separate also works, but I think it's, it's even more powerful when you can link it. No, definitely. I, I think, I think you're correct there. And there's just so many different opportunities that you can do it in. And I think just stressing um, the opportunities to, to communicate within the class um, is is a big piece of it. So when we're talking about thinking of, you know, really providing resources and strategies to educators, as well as we could also talk, you know, families and parents, mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what type of professional development should there be or professional learning resources to help facilitate rich talk? Yeah, and it's a great question. And that's something I've been working on a lot recently, because I've had a lot of <laughs> a lot of interest in people actually saying, well, how can we make this happen? And I do think there's a few key ways. And one is just that we need to shift away from kind of the standard professional development model where they're just, you know, teachers are being lectured at and then left to their own devices, you know, to either apply what they've learned or to just, you know, not apply it or do the best they can. Um, I think what we really need is a lot of more coaching based models where teachers are able to apply these in real life settings. They're actually able to take authentic curricula, their authentic challenges and say, well, let's actually work through this in more of a, you know, professional learning community type of model rather than saying, okay, here's your, you know, downloadable information and then go away. Um, so I think that's one thing. I think um, one of the other things is really helping to give colleagues feedback. So recognizing that we all have different communication styles, different strengths, and that even teachers who may be more on the quiet side or the, you know, less, you know, sort of blustery side um, can be great models in terms of perhaps reflective listening, that kind of thing. So kind of everyone has something they can bring in terms of their strengths communicatively. And so actually giving feedback on, you know, what's working well, how can I learn from you uh, is really critical here. So I think those are the two key components. No, I really like how you mentioned coaching. And I think that a lot of professional development in general 
needs to be focused on coaching models where they get, you know, teachers get feedback and they get opportunities to go see other classrooms and other communication styles and um, moving outside the siloed model. Um, I, I just, it's, it's critical to see what else is out there as well as um, being coached one-on-one -on -one and then also being provided with someone to model off of. And those are, those are extremely powerful and going along with materials like a, a book for a book study or um, other professional development resources are, are, are really critical too, because those are, you know, the foundational pieces. Do, yeah, you, I love do, it. do you go into schools and do coaching yourself? I do. Yeah. I've done, I've just begun actually doing a lot more of that kind of, even developing professional development based on the book. So the book actually has seven themes. So everything from empathy, you know, confidence, creativity. And so actually taking the time to piece those apart in more of a coaching model. Yeah. I've just begun doing that, which has been really fascinating. Um, Cause I hadn't really thought about how much it does, <laughs> you know, you it can be kind of taken apart and um, kind of worked through individually as chapters. Um, but there's been a lot of interest in doing that because I think um, they can be somewhat self-contained as you can say, well, let's focus on this, this subject now and then we can switch to another um, obviously all linked, but self-contained as well. No, that's, that's great. And I, I, I like how you break it down into themes and that's probably very easy to and transmissible to people to understand what exactly you're trying to break down and all the nuances that go along <laughs> with each of those themes. Cause those are pretty loaded. I mean, empathy is like yeah. creativity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh my gosh, those are, there's so much that you can untangle there. So, oh, sure. <laughs> um, so before we finish our conversation tonight, so what are some, you know, tips that you would help um, provide educators right now to have them navigate the present and future of education relating to your expertise and work? Yes, definitely. So I think obviously it's such a difficult time um, to be an educator right now. There's so much um, on teachers' plates. There's so many challenges. And I think one thing is that I think my book really emphasizes is to take a moment and step back and to really think about helping students realize the purpose of education. So moving beyond tests and numbers, it is obviously achievement is important, but really about helping children identify their own passions, their own goals, helping them become more self-aware and take ownership of their learning is so key, um, much more than just saying, let's succeed on this test. Let's you know do well on this. So actually to kind of take a step back and say, well, what's the big picture here and helping students do that I would say is so critical, especially today. Um, and even I think the second part is just to realize that just so many students really want and are desperately looking for someone to just sit and listen to them, even for only a little bit of time. I know teachers are busy and you know there's lots of students, but um, especially those students who feel passed over or who may not be as engaged, just to take some time, sit and listen and hear what's going on with their life, with their motivation and so on is so powerful. Um, and some kids just need one teacher to do that and really to feel much more engaged. So um, I think those are, those are two things I'd like to leave with. No, definitely. Those are, those are some, you know, fantastic tips. And I'm going to throw a little bit of curveball because I think we have some time. I'm going to give you a little scenario that a lot of teachers face um, and see what your thoughts are. So <laughs> Say, for example, a student comes in, they have their hood on, they have earbuds in. How would you, as someone in a teacher's shoes, navigate that situation, maybe over the course of maybe like a week? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think um, 
first, I wouldn't take it as a behavior problem. So I think that's what often, you know, we do, we sort of like, let's look at the surface level, like, oh, they don't look engaged, they look, you know, lazy, they look not, you know, we sort of are triggered by that. So I would first sort of notice the fact that we may be triggered by that, or we may feel like, oh, that's doing something to us, and start to look and ask underneath the surface. Um, So maybe even just, um, I might say even before class or after class, when there's kind of a quiet moment, um, just to say like, hey, like I noticed, you know, you've been kind of quiet recently, or, you know, how, how's everything going? Or just, you know, even to comment on something that they did that was interesting to you or something they said, perhaps that was interesting in class. Um, I think a lot of times students like that, they do feel like maybe they're shut off, but they're not sure how to start that cycle of re-engaging. And so if you do notice something, even if it was something they wrote, so maybe they didn't actually say something to you, but something they turned in that was interesting, you know, just to make a comment on that and to kind of allow them to maybe talk a little bit more about it. Like, oh, it's something you said that was interesting to me. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, you know, rather than make it the focus, like what's this behavior, what's this shut offness? Um, sometimes, you know, oftentimes kids who are in that position don't want to have that pinpointed, you know, immediately, they feel uncomfortable. And so, you know, to actually make it about something that they might feel good about, um, whether it's academic or even something non-academic you've noticed, um, can be a really good way in. No, I, I think what, um, what that really looks like to me, and I'm going to call it this is positive nudges towards like trying to, you know, starting mm-hmm. to build that bridge. Exactly. And um, yeah, and it's, I think sometimes, and I've been guilty of this is taking that as an insult or, um, you know, trying to get to the bottom of things or trying to be the, you know, someone trying to fix things. And, you know, sometimes I think that this where I've grown is, is it's actually for them, it's maybe it's like coping, or they feel safe that way. And then it's just you try you as a as educator trying to, over time, create a bridge and say, you know, positive things over the course of a week, or just anything that can come to mind. And then maybe over time, there's opportunities for that, you know, open dialogue to happen, and you can exactly. build that relationship. Yeah. And I think to realize that sometimes those students aren't going to come out immediately and say, oh, you know, my mother's in the hospital or, oh, whatever, you know, or even something's really minor. They might not come out with that. But to be okay with just saying, okay, we're going to have a surface level talk now. But if we're feeling more bonded over time, that leads to kind of the deeper bonding. So, yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely, I think, as educators, we, it, I think patience is something that are just like just being able to wait it out. And we want that instant you know, I think yeah, human nature, yeah, no, instant gratification of like, hey, I did a positive action or I made this right decision for the class or the student or, our, mm-hmm. you know, both parties. And it's just, uh, I think just a matter of, you know, we can't always force things. We just got to let it come like that natural. And that's what I think in education is that that's the art piece. It's that it, it's really that feeling out and determining based on your experience and what you know, based on, you know, the research and best practice of like, what, what do you do and just got to be patient to navigate it all. So I really like that, you know, those, those tips and strategies that you talked about, because I think that that's, you know, something that really can be applied, um, you know, right now in, in, in classroom. So definitely. Great. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. And thank you so much for joining tonight. Um, 
I really appreciate the conversation. I think there's so many good nuggets here that educators and parents and families can take a look at and really dive into and in further research. And before we go, what's the best way for listeners to follow you? Um, so I have a website that you can follow me at, which is just RebeccaRoland.com. So two C's and two L's. Uh, and there I actually have a weekly newsletter where I've started laying out some tips and strategies and so on. So you can find it there. And I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. So you can find me on social media. And I think it's um, Roland underscore RG on Twitter and just Rebecca Roland on, um, on Facebook. Yeah, awesome. I, I, I checked out your website and your resources there. And there's, there's a lot of stuff to take in and then also the book to check out. So definitely, uh, I, I hope that our listeners can, and can look at it and dive a little bit more deeper in. So thank you so much. And for those that are following the podcast, you can go on Anchor, YouTube, Spotify, all your major podcast players and access this episode and listen to not only this episode, but other episodes, all 46 other episodes. And if you want to follow me, the host, you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Rhodes 1990 and on Instagram at Dr. Rhodes EDU. And for our next episode, I can't wait to talk about a um, breaking the blockbuster model, which I'm not going to talk a little bit more about that right now, but it's a really exciting uh, book and just idea for education. And I'm really going to be excited to talk about that in the coming weeks. So With that said, everyone, thank you so much. And I hope that you enjoy the rest of your evening and we'll talk soon. Have a good one.